awesome to be with you guys uh, this morning. I'm going to pull up a picture of my family, if we could uh, pull that up. Okay, we'll go to the next slide, actually. So um, we're, the, we're the Lawrence family, and uh, I'm Dan. My wife, Lisa, is there with me in the picture, and we have two little boys, Adley, who is eight, and Ellis, who is three, and we serve as international workers with the Christian Missionary Alliance in the city of Paris, France. Um, we're excited to be with you. I'm excited to be with you here today. And I want to share with you a little bit about what God is doing in France, but also why France? Why, why missions? Why are we sending people um, to places like France? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Before I jump into our ministry, I will go to the next slide here. I just want to share with you guys an opportunity to stay connected. I'm meeting some of you guys today for the first time, but if you'd like to hear more about what God is doing, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, you can follow us at Lawrence's in Paris, and we kind of post about ministry opportunities and things that God is doing there. But if you would like to get a prayer letter, if you'd like to join our prayer team, you can do so. We send out an email once a month, um, and you can do that by either emailing us at lawrencesinparis at gmail.com, or if you're here in person on the back table in the lobby, you'll see a French flag and an Eiffel Tower. Um, you can sign up on a clipboard or with a QR code. And we have a prayer card. I encourage you at least to take one of these, just a little card that has our family's picture on it, a little information. You can put it in your Bible, your wallet, your fridge. I don't care. Just a way to remind you to pray for us. And if you're not here in person today, I'll leave a whole bunch um, behind. So if you're at the church in person sometime in the near future, you can pick one of those up. Um, today, I want to talk about global missions. And I love coming to your church this morning because I saw several world maps um, in your church. There's one out here. I saw one in the fellowship hall. There's world maps. And I think it's important that as believers, we always keep in mind God's heart for the world. And so um, there's a theme that has been uh, instituted within the Christian Missionary Alliance family since our founder, A.B. Simpson, kind of launched this movement out of New York City almost 150 years ago. And it's this theme of all of Jesus for all the world, all of Jesus for all the world. And now we get this from the Great Commission. We'll go to the next side here. And, and this passage you've probably heard before, but I'm going to read it for you this morning. This is Jesus' last words to his disciples after their years of ministry, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and as he ascends into heaven, he says these challenging, charging words to them that we should be mindful of every day. And I'll just go right to verse 18. It says, then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything or all things that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always till the very end of the age. Now you may have noticed, but there are four alls here in this passage, and I just want to talk about them briefly. The first says, all authority. In this mission that Jesus has charged all of his disciples, even us today, our modern-day disciples, all authority, we cannot fail in this mission because we carry our king's credentials. Secondly, all peoples, no one, no one is to be denied the opportunity to enter into his kingdom. And thirdly, all I've commanded, everything we need to remain rooted in his great love and guided in his sacred mission. And fourthly, this promise of presence with you always. We're abiding in his spirit 24-7 in power and presence. This is the Great Commission. This is our charge. This is our challenge as disciples of Jesus 
Go to the next slide here. So I'm gonna share with you a little bit about missions and how the Great Commission plays out in our global world today. We live in a world of about 7.1 billion people. Of course, that number goes up and down a little bit every, every day, but around that. 3.4 billion people in this world are unreached. That means they never have heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, in a world where we live, you'll see in this um, image I have before you, there's a green that says high access, a, a yellow that says low access, and a red that says no access. Not everybody in the world has equal access to the gospel. If you think about your community where you live, you probably know other Christians. You probably drive by many churches. There's Christian radio stations. There's Christian bookstores. You have high access to things that are of God and his church and of Christ. But that's not the case many places around the world. Let's go to the next slide. This is what that looks like on a global map. The places being green, like most of the Western Hemisphere here, North and South America, are places of now, at this time in history, high access to the gospel. But places like Europe and, and Russia and parts of Africa, where, and Europe where I'm at, is considered low access. And then there's some places around the world that are red. Uh, pockets of those places almost have no access. And here you'll see this is one of the things I love about the alliances. We have about 800 international workers like myself that are being sent out from U.S. CMA churches across the world. And 80% of us, 800 of us, 80% of us are serving in this window on the world. The most unreached places in the world. People going after people that still don't have gospel access. Let's go to the next slide here. I serve in France. I serve in the country of France, and maybe a lot of times when people think of global missions, they don't think of France, but by the end of this talk today, I hope that you do. <laughs> we have Alliance missionaries serving in three major cities, Toulouse, which is in the south, those are those pins in the map, Bordeaux here on the, on the, the, the west coast, and then Paris, which is the capital in the north where I serve. Go to the next slide. Um, this is our apartment in Paris where we live. You see those three little windows. My wife and children are there in the middle window kind of waving at you, but um, that's where we live, a little two-bedroom apartment in the city. Um, we live downtown Paris, and um, it's a great place, um, and a lot of Paris is not very high buildings, maybe six, seven-story apartments, but they all have a little shop on the bottom whether that's a bakery or a cafe or a seamstress, whatever. It could be any kind of shop, but that's sidewalk floor level shops. Well, there's a shop right under the floorboards of our apartment. And um, you wouldn't know it by this picture, but this shop is actually a mystic crystal shop. So in this shop, what they do is they sell crystals that are believed to have magical or mystical powers. So people come to this shop buying a crystal, hoping it can maybe save their marriage kill their cancer. If they're poor, maybe make them rich, whatever. There's a crystal for something. And it's sad, but that's the reality. And the, the, the worst part about this is that this store is always full. It's always hustling and bustling. There's always people in there. People are looking for hope. They're looking for something. They're just searching in the wrong places. But this goes on to illustrate better um, the spiritual needs in Paris. So the next one here is, I just want to talk to you about, the, the, the mystic crystals begin to give you a glimpse into the darkness of the spiritual reality here. Even though Paris is the city of light, that's its nickname, it's one of the most spiritually dark cities in all of Europe. 
France, like most of Europe, is what's called a post-Christian or post-religion culture. Once upon a time, many generations ago now, Catholicism was extremely influential, but it no longer is. And so people have, have left God, they've left the church, and many people are what I would say are antagonistic. They're aggressively against anything to do with God or any forms of religion, not just Christianity, but all religions, they're against it. And so because of that, France is now the fourth largest atheist country in the entire world. And because of that, less than 1% of the population claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In my neighborhood in Paris, where we live, there is one church for every 60,000 people. And the average size of a church is only 30, maximum 40 people. So France is a country that lacks access to the gospel. What does that even mean, gospel access? Really, it means this, that so many people in France have never once heard the gospel. But not only have they never heard, they can't hear. Even if they wanted to find out more, they don't have access. They wouldn't know where to look. There aren't many churches to walk into. And most French people have never even met a true disciple of Jesus. And many of them never will in their entire life. So the only way for them to hear is that someone has to go and tell them. And that's why we go. That's why we do missions. Let's go to the next slide here. This right here is our neighborhood in Paris. There's 20 districts in the city, and we live in the 15th district, or the 15e arrondissement. That's where we live there in, in the west side of Paris. It's the largest geographically district, but also largest population, and has the highest concentration of young families. Um, and that's where we're at. So the reality is, is that in a country or in a culture um, where people, if you were to invite them to church because of this antagonistic um, approach to religion, if you were to invite them to church, they would say, no way. But if you were to invite them to dinner, they would say, I'd love to. So this is our approach to evangelism. We go and intentionally meet people in our community where they are, and we begin to build relationships with them. And through relationships, we invite them to join us for coffee or something out, and we begin a friendship. We begin a relationship. And we believe that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if someone gets to know me, they can't help but begin to experience the love of Jesus Christ himself. And so it's through relationships that people are gaining gospel access for the first time. We see that around the table, let's go back to that last slide, please. What we see around the table, what happens is that people, when they come and gather, um, they feel honored. They feel equal. People are loved and respected at the table, and people are just more free to talk about their lives. And when you invite someone to dinner, it's an, it, honestly, it's a very intimate thing. It's inviting them into your life to meet your family, into your home. And so we've seen this happen time and time again. In our experience in ministry, we have found that often people have to first be introduced to the people of God before they can be introduced to the person of God. We found that a lot of times people first have to belong before they can believe. So we lead with love, we lead with hospitality. If you read the Gospels of Jesus, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but we see the person of Jesus gathered around tables more than he was in the temple. We see the book of Acts in the early churches filled with people gathering in homes and upper rooms, sharing what they had with one another, and we're trying to return to that. We kind of see ourselves as a modern-day expression of the early church, but it doesn't have to be 
a table. It could be a picnic. Let's go to the next picture. Often in our community context, we'll just send out a text and say, hey, we're going to be at this park on this Saturday at two. We'd love for you to join us. People bring a blanket and food and we sit and we just share together for hours and talking. Or it can go, next slide, it could be at a school. Um, We have a friend who's a teacher and she loved our idea of hosting these dinner get-togethers, and so we just pulled tables and desks and chairs out of the school, and right in the school playground, um, we had a dinner, and that's what we did. But we found that a lot of this development of communities, it's really fascinating, and what our hope and our our goal is that someday, um, as people are coming together through these dinners, they're beginning to discover God. We're introducing people to Jesus. We're giving them the word of God. We're praying with them. And our hope is that these faith communities will begin to multiply and that all of the districts around Paris one day, by the grace of God, would have faith communities, people gathering together in homes, in parks, at schools, people gathering in those places. But the reality is, is that we're finding out more, and I think this is a call for God's church today, is that we need to think less about doing missions and we need to think more about being missional. It's not something that we do. It's not a light switch that you turn on and off. It becomes who, have we, who we are. It's part of our identity in Christ is to be missional. I want to share a story with you guys um, about my friend Fred. Let's go to the next picture here. So this is my friend Fred, and that's me, my wife, talking with him in a park. One day, a couple years ago, my wife was at a park with our son, and they were playing at the park, and my wife was talking with him in English. He was playing, and this man sitting on the bench next to her came up to my wife, and he said, uh, excuse me, madame, est-ce que vous êtes un Américain? Excuse me, ma'am, but, but are you an American? Now, when somebody asks you that question in a foreign country, you're like, is this good or bad? I don't know. But she said, well, well yes, sir, I am. He goes, oh, great. I'm fascinated by America. Hey, honey, come over here. And then he calls his wife, and his wife comes over, and they have two children, and this lady's from America. And they begin to strike up a conversation, and they talk for 15 or 20 minutes. Well, kids are getting rowdy, and time comes where they break apart. And my wife says, hey, um, it's nice to meet you. Maybe we could get coffee sometime. I know my husband would like to meet you. I wasn't with her that day. And she said, could I get your phone number? They said, absolutely. And they got the phone number. Then what happened is later that week, the four of us contacted each other and we got together for coffee. Now, coffee in France is not the venti, right? It's an espresso. It's about this big. But we met at a, at a cafe and we drank coffee with them and we talked for about four hours over this little cup of coffee in a cafe, just getting to know them. And they never once asked us about America. They were interested in us and we were interested in them. And we heard each other's stories and where we came from. That began the process of us spending time together every week. They were in our home. We were in their home. We'd get our kids together, meet at a park, do a picnic, go for a walk, da, da, da. And we began a relationship that was deep. When we were together in the community, walking through the community, they began to introduce us as their American friends. Have you met our friends from America? And we would begin to introduce and talk with them. But as time happened and time went on and a year turned into two years, of our friendship, we had deep conversations. And they stopped talking about us and introducing us as their American friends and began to introduce us as their best friends. Have you met our best friends? This is Dan and Lisa, because we spent time, time and time. Go to the next slide here. In European culture, vacation is a big deal. Notoriously, Europeans take a a, a big chunk of vacation typically in August. 
but it's a, it's a sacred time. It's only for the family. And a lot of times they'll go away just as their family for three, maybe four weeks. Well, they asked us um, about two summers ago, they said, hey, we would like to invite you to join us for a week of vacation. Now, in that culture, that's a big deal because that means that you're now family. And we said, we'd, we'd be honored. So we went and we spent a week with them on vacation, just creating memories and more time together. During that vacation, Fred came to me and he said, Dan, um, uh, you know, Leticia, that's his wife's name, her and I, we've been together for a long time. Um, we got two kids. Uh, but you know what? We're not, we're not married. I said, really? He said, yeah. We're thinking about getting married. I said, well, that's a good thing, Fred. You got, that would be great. You should get married. And he says, I was wondering if I could ask you a favor. I said, sure. He said, would you be my best man? I said, Fred, I would be honored to be your best man. So let's go to the next picture. Last summer, Fred and Leticia got married, and I was the best man in their wedding. Now, it's different in France. They don't get married in churches. They get married in courthouse. It's not a pastor or a priest. It's a judge. And there isn't a wedding party. There's one person that is the legal witness. I had to go through a background check to be his best man because I had to sign legal documents. It's very different than here. But I was there that day with him, and I had to give a speech at their reception in French, give a toast, you know. And uh, at the end of the day, we were tearing down. We were stacking chairs um, and he said, Dan, thank you so much. I said, oh, no problem. I used to be a pastor. I'm really good at stacking chairs, right? It's part of the job description, yeah. And uh, so we were there, and he said, no, not, not thank you for the chairs. I said, okay, what then? He said, thank you. He said, because Dan, in my life, you have always been kind, and you've always been present. See, the power of presence in someone's life is significant. We have gone out of our way to have a meaningful, significant presence in the life of Fred and Leticia and many of the other stories that I'll share with you here in a little bit. It's this idea that God is calling us to invest in the lives of people that do not yet know him. Now, Fred and Leticia have heard the gospel. We've shared it with them on many occasions and be praying for them because they have not accepted Christ, but they have clearly accepted us. And that is a step in the right direction. And so be praying for people like that. Today, I, I want to um, share a, a, a bit from the Word together. And so if you have a Bible with you, um, uh, whether it's digital format or paper format, you can look it up. If not, we'll have, we'll have the words on the screen. We're going to be spending a little bit of time in Luke 15, if you go there. You know, it's interest, interesting. After I um, share with people about France, and I tell a story like Fred Leticia, I share the statistics with you and things like that. People still ask me, well, why, Dan? Why France? Why do we send missionaries to France? That doesn't always make sense. And the simple answer is this, and this is a core value in the CMA, but it's also the title of our talk today, and it's this. Go to the next slide, please. Lost people matter to God, and he wants them found. Lost people matter to God, and he wants them found. We're going to be in Luke 15, but let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your word and everything that you've given to us. We pray that you would just be with us in all that we do today. And God, we come to your word with a sense of anticipation, a sense that you would speak to us, that we would lean into you, that we would hear your heart beat clearly today, Lord Jesus, and that we would receive something from you that would open our eyes to a new facet of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for this day in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So a lot of times when we read the Bible, we open up the Bible, um, 
we focus a lot on the words of Jesus. I don't know about many of you, but I grew up with a red letter edition of the Bible. And maybe some of you guys in here did as well. Now, the red letter edition of the Bible, right, all the words of Jesus were, were printed red. And the, the words of Jesus are extremely powerful and important, and we should focus on them. However, sometimes while focusing on the words of Jesus, we can easily overlook the actions of Jesus. Often I found that Jesus teaches the why, but he lives out the how. In the middle of the book of Luke, we find Jesus doing what he often does. Yes, he was teaching, and that's what he's been doing, but at this time, he is hanging out with who? Sinners. He's hanging out with these people that all the religious leaders around him say, oh, you shouldn't be hanging out with them. But these are the sinners. These sinners are the people that Jesus can't pull his way himself away from. He can't stay away from them. He's drawn to them because these are the people that Jesus loves and the people that are in need of him. So let's just look at the first two verses of Luke 15, verses one and two. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Okay, so in this passage, who is Jesus with? He's with tax collectors and sinners. He's with lost people, people that don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. But what does Jesus say in these two verses? Absolutely nothing. See, in this passage, it's all about what Jesus is doing. The quote in this first two verses aren't from Jesus or from the, tax, from the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then they're looking at Jesus and they say, oh, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You can almost hear the disgust or disdain in their voices as they say it, but I, I love this quote, very honestly, because I think it speaks so much about the heart of Jesus and the way that he lived his life. He welcomed, never pushing away people, loving them, accepting them, and he respects them regardless of who they were or where they came from. And then on top of that, he eats with them. Like I said before, there is a power of inviting someone to eat with you. He makes them feel as equals. He embraces them. He honors them and forms community with them. And I think personally, honestly, one of the reasons I love this so much is because it's basically the ministry model that we are doing in Paris. It's kind of the general job description and philosophy of what God is calling us to do there. We're forming community with lost people by loving them and inviting them to the table. And I hope someday that it could be said of me that this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus does something unique here in this passage. He leads with the how. He shows the religious leaders how to live and how to do ministry and whom to minister to. And then when they confront him about this, that's when he gives them the why. He basically says to them, lost people matter to God and he wants them found, but he says it in the form of three well-known and famous parables. These are known as the parables of the lost. So in the Bible, when people don't know who Jesus is, they're referred to as lost. And in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables, the parables of the lost. First, he tells of a shepherd who lost his sheep. He leaves the flock of 99 to go after that one lost sheep. The shepherd doesn't stop until he finds it. Secondly, he tells of a woman who lost a coin. She calls all of her friends together to help her find this lost coin. And thirdly, he tells them um, what many consider is the greatest short story of all time, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. You might know this story well, but the son takes his father's inheritance, basically saying to his father, who is the God character, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. I only care about what you can give me. 
And he takes that inheritance, and of course, he squanders it all. He blows it all away. But eventually, he helplessly returns to the Father. And amazingly, even though he turned his back on the Father, the Father welcomes him back. The Father sees him in the distance, and even though he's a long way off, the Father has been daily, anxiously awaiting his return. In a glorious image of how God views anyone who does not have a relationship with him, he welcomes them back. He wants them to return. He wants them found. So as I was rereading these three parables, in all three parables, there was something that was just a glaring similarity that stuck out. In all of these occasions, when whatever is lost is found, there is a huge and extravagant party. There's a celebration. When the shepherd um, calls, when he finds the sheep, he calls all his friends together and he says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. The lady who lost the coin calls her friend and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And of course, famously, the father of the prodigal son says this, quick, verse 22 and 24, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So what do these three celebrations tell us about how God views lost people? They show us this. Lost people are treasured by God. Lost people are treasured by God. Jesus sees lost people as treasured and valuable. And so should we. Lost people are something to be cherished and God desperately wants them back. He was willing to do whatever it takes to have them return. And this is how we should see people that don't yet know Jesus. This is what Jesus intended after all because we all once were lost, right? Lost people matter to God and he wants them found. I wanna share with you a, friend, a story about my friend Nazar. Some of you that were here yesterday, I shared this, but I'll recap it. I met Nazar actually watching soccer when France won the World Cup um, a few years ago. Him and I met at a public area watching a game, and I met Nazar, and <clears throat> Nazar loves sports. And he talked to me, and he said, Dan, what is this weird sport that you play in America? I said, what are you talking about, Nazar? He said, you know that one where they wear helmets and hit each other? I said, oh, you're talking about American football. He said, yes, what is that? I said, well, if you'd like, why don't you come over to my house? We can watch a game together, and I'll try to explain it to you. Oh, sure. <clears throat> I said, my wife will cook some food. It'll be a good time. He said, can I invite some friends? I said, of course. So Nazar and his um, friends come over, and we begin to watch the game, and it was a good time. And I said to them, hey, uh, you know there's a game next week. You want to come back? Well, sure. So we started meeting every Sunday night in our home to watch football, have dinner, and fellowship. Go to the next slide. <coughs> so we started averaging about 12 to 15 people on a Sunday night in our home. And if you look at this picture, one of the things I love about it is in this picture, the TV is actually on the right. No one's looking at it because no one really came for football. One day I was out in the neighborhood with Nazar, and he met a man in the streets. And he said, hey, you should come to Dan's house. We watch football. I said, oh, this is great. But he said, if you don't like sports, that's okay. None of us come for the sports. We're all there for the people. And so what happened is a community began to form. Over the course of <clears throat> this time, we, we, we would average 10, 12 to 15. Sometimes we'd have 
almost 30 people there on a Sunday night, just an open door policy. If you're in the area, want to come for dinner, hang out, please do. Through American football, we've handed out Bibles to people. I've prayed with people, shared with them the gospel. It's been cool. <coughs> Go to the next slide here. But here's the story on Nazar. Nazar is actually an immigrant from the country of Iran. And you know, we can't get missionaries into Iran. But maybe we can reach Iranians in France, right? <coughs> so Nazar, the more I got to know him, I heard his story. The story of Nazar is unfortunate. He moved to France to marry a woman. They got married, and she's a French woman. They have a child together. But several years ago, she left him. She took their son, and he hasn't seen either of them in years. And so Nazar lives alone by himself in a very, very small apartment. I've been there. He lives by himself. Nazar might be the loneliest person I've ever met in my entire life. And the reality is, is that in a lot of cities around the world, loneliness is an epidemic. There are people in our communities everywhere that are lonely and feel like they have no one. Over two years, we hosted American football, about 50 weeks total. Nazar never missed a single night. He was there every Sunday night for 50 weeks. Inquisitive, wanting community, craving community. And when we left to come back, he said to me, uh, Daniel, I'm going to miss you. I said, Nazar, I'll miss you as well. And he said, no, you don't understand. He said to me, um, you have other people in your life. I have no one else. See, Nazar's lonely, and the thing is, is that Nazar's around a lot. A lot of times he'll just knock on my door and say, hey, I'm in your neighborhood. Do you want to get coffee? And if I can, I always say yes. Some people around will say, doesn't Nazar get annoying? Like, he's here a lot. Like, no way. You know why? Because Nazar is treasured by God, and he should be treasured by me as well. And that brings me to the second point here I want us to remember today. It's this. God wants to find the lost through us. God wants to find the lost through us. Now, I want to share with you a, another verse, and this isn't from Luke 15, so you don't have to turn there, but you've probably heard it before. Matthew 4, 18 through 20. This is the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. It says Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, right? And he, he saw these two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and brother, and his brother, Andrew, and they were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. So in this passage that many of us probably have heard before, Jesus is calling Peter and he's calling Andrew to become his disciples for the first time. So Jesus leads with the two most powerful and life-changing words in all of human history. Jesus himself beckoning to us, follow me. Words that he still says to us today, follow me. And first and foremost, we are called to follow the person of Jesus. But in this passage, I think it's fascinating what follows those two very important words, follow me and, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, Jesus is saying, I want you to help get other people to join me. Jesus is saying, together we can help others follow me. It's about evangelism. It's about mission. And these are very important to Jesus. We see it time and time again. And here, actually, it's in the same breath. In the same breath that he calls his disciples to follow him, he's also calling them to mission. This is at the beginning of becoming a disciple. This is the basics of our faith. But yet, for some reason, we, the modern-day disciples, have walked away 
from this foundation. See, sharing Jesus with others is at the very core of what Jesus calls us to do. In this phrase, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, I think that the most undervalued word is the word and. And. If you follow Jesus, you will make disciples. You will make followers of Jesus. He chooses the word and. He doesn't use the word or, maybe, some of you with special gifts, those of you that feel like you have this calling on your life, those of you that that have a special title. No, he doesn't separate the two. Disciples, fishers of men. But many of us today have separated the two. There should be no difference between following Jesus and intentionally helping others to follow Jesus because disciples, by Jesus' definition, disciples make disciples. Honestly, as a, as a pastor, I'll say this openly, I think one of the greatest crimes of the modern-day church is that we have allowed people to believe that you can be a true disciple of Jesus without being actively involved in his effort to rescue lost people. You know, I was always told that the first and last impressions that you make on someone are the most important, right? They carry weight. So we see Jesus, his first impression amongst the disciples is follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is his first words. But do you remember what his last words to them were right before he ascended into heaven? We already read it. I'll say it again. A great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. The great commission is Jesus' coach before the big game speech, if you would. It's to go out and get him. Give it everything you got. He bookends his ministry with the disciples, with go and make, become fishers of men and go and make disciples. And everywhere in between, this is a call, a part of God, the call of God to follow him. Because a life devoted to Christ should be a life devoted to reaching the lost. If we try to disconnect following Jesus and missional living, I believe that we are committing an unholy act That is not of God. I'm going to jump back into Luke 15 because this passage is is, is really rich. Jesus wants to emphasize how he feels about the lost. So he says these three parables. And something you'll notice is that anytime Jesus says something in threes, it means a lot, okay? When he shares about lost people, he's doing two things. He wants us to know how he feels about reaching the lost, but he also wants to show us how we should feel about the lost. Let's go to Luke 15, three through seven. I just wanna recap here the, the parable of the lost sheep. He says, suppose one of you have 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons that do not need to repent. In this parable, the role of the shepherd is God. Now I could go into the culture of who Jesus is talking to and how important that flock is to that shepherd. See, at this time, for that shepherd, his flock is everything. It's his income, it's his insurance, it's his retirement plan, it's his entire livelihood, and likely the livelihood of the generations before and after him. So to leave the 99 to go after this one culturally seems crazy. It seems crazy. But for this shepherd, that one lost sheep means so much to him that it's worth any risk. When I recently reread this passage, a phrase popped off 
the page at me, and we kind of actually sang about this a little earlier today, which I think is cool how God lines that up. There were two words that came, and they just popped off the page to me, and I really believe that these are the two words that God wants to share with us today. In verse 4, it says, does, not, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? We serve a missionary God, Amen. A missionary God, a God who left behind the comforts of heaven to come to earth and take on the feeble form of humanity so that he could save us. Jesus, he came after us. A God that could have looked at us and have said, look what you got yourself into now. Good luck with that. No, he came after us. He came and he died on the cross in the greatest rescue mission that the world has ever seen. And the beautiful thing is, is he's still coming after us today. He chases after us. He pursues us. And he's intentionally coming after us in all that he does. God desperately wants you to return to him. God desperately wants the lost found. And as we, church, are called to be imitators of Christ, God is calling us to go after the lost. My last point today is this. Missional living is intentional living. Missional living is intentional living. God is calling us to go after lost people. He's calling us to be intentionally missional in all that we do. Do we view every day of our lives as an opportunity to go after lost people? Do we pray daily for the lost in our lives and in our community? Before you exit your home, do you pray and ask God to bring a lost person into your life that day? Are we actively outside the walls of our churches and our homes, entrenched in the community, looking for ways to share the gospel with people where they are, are you intentionally going after the lost? Because I believe it's what God has always called us to do. I believe it's what Jesus intended from the very first days on the shore when he invited his disciples to follow me and I will make you fishers of men because lost people matter to God and he wants them found. Jesus himself said in Luke 19.10, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost you know what? We can't save the lost. Only Jesus can do that. But we can seek out the lost and introduce them to the person of Jesus. Introduce them to the one person that can save them. We should be imitators of Christ. Seek out, go after lost people. And it's clear to me that this is what God wants of his disciples. You know what's interesting? I shared this with some people at dinner the other day. But in this role that I have this year, I've traveled around and I'm speaking at several churches I grew up in the church. I pastored for a long time. And as long as I've been in church, never once have I seen a dying church that is truly missional. Because here's what happened. When we become missional, it changes everything about us. It changes our hearts. It changes our purpose. It changes our perspective and our attitudes. But most importantly, when we become missional, it aligns our hearts with the heart of God. And we, come, we become obedient in what he has asked us to do. And God blesses that. Being intentional about mission, though, it doesn't have to be some massive undertaking. Maybe it is, but it doesn't have to be. See, missional living is intentionally living in such a way that goes after lost people on a daily basis. It can be the simple things in life, like cooking or going to the store, going to a playground, going to the gym, going to the pool. All of these things can be missional if you're intentional in how you do it. What we see as mundane, God intends for mission. It can be as simple as this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. 
I'm going to close in just sharing quick short stories here about how this can be. First, I'm going to share a picture with you, and this is a picture of us at a farm. How many of you guys in fall time like to go to a farm where you pick pumpkins or apples or lots of people do, right? We like to do this, but there aren't many farms in Paris, but we found an apple orchard just about an hour outside of the city. And we thought, this would be great. We should go pick apples. It's something that we wanted to do. But we thought, you know what? We should invite our friends. So we invited about 10 people to come pick apples with us. It was something we were already going to do. Might as well make it missional. You can see Nazar actually right there wearing his little hat. And he came and he picked apples. And for about four or five hours on a Saturday, we walked through the orchard talking in God's creation, sharing about life, picking apples together, having a wonderful time. Go to the next picture. Our son Ellis um, was born in Paris, and he turned one there, and I shared a little bit about Sylvia yesterday. I won't retell her story today, but um, you know, our son Ellis turned one, and we're going to throw him a birthday party. We're going to have a birthday party for him, but you know what? If you've ever had a one-year-old, the birthday party isn't really for them. You don't ask your one-year-old, do you have a guest list? Who would you like to invite to the party? No. It's really for the parents and, and their friends, right? So we said, hey, this is a great opportunity. We invited 30 of our neighbors to our, first, our son's first birthday party. It was something we were already gonna do. Might as well make it missional. Many of those families came and you know what? They're like, oh, you included us like in a family celebration? This is awesome. And it was such a catalyst for many of our relationships to go deeper just by inviting them into something that we were already gonna do. It was taking something and making it missional. Another thing, last one here on this story is, uh, go to the next picture, please. Right next to that mystic crystal shop I told you about is a flower shop. Now, my wife loves flowers. I don't know if many of you ladies might like fresh flowers on your table. My wife does. And so maybe once every other week, we'd stop and buy a bouquet for our, for our table. And as my wife would stop and get flowers, she began to meet the owner. Let's go to the next slide. The owner of this uh, shop, her name is Noah. And Noah um, owns the shop and we began to meet her, and her and my wife, if there was time and there weren't a lot of customers, they'd strike up a conversation. And over time, what happened is my wife started stopping at the flower shop two to three days a week. Now, not buying flowers, because we weren't going to the shop for flowers anymore. We are going to the shop for Noah. We started a relationship with her, and um, Lisa said, hey, um, you know, it'd be great maybe sometime we hung out outside of your business. Noah was like, what? A customer wants to spend time with me? My wife said, when's your day off? Thursdays. Want to get coffee? I, I would love that. And so on her day off, Lisa and Noah went and got coffee. And they started developing a relationship even deeper outside of this. I could tell you stories about how we intentionally go back to the same shops over and over again. We go to the grocer, the butcher, the person that fixes your clothes, whatever it might be, go back to the same place and build a relationship. I go to our butcher, I know his story, I know where his family's from, their kids' names, and build this with opportunities to be intentional to go to those businesses for the people that own them. In closing, I just want to recap the one parable that I haven't talked about yet, and that's of the lost coin. The lost coin parable that's found in verses 8 through 10, we get a sense of urgency from Jesus here. He describes that there is a woman in this story who it's in the evening, she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house and she searches carefully until she finds what is lost. There's a sense that this is not something that can be put off until tomorrow. Sound the alarm. Time is of the essence. I've got to find what is lost. A.B. Simpson, who's the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, has this great quote that I love. Next slide, please. He says, 
Go to the next slide. One more, please. He says this, missions is not merely an opportunity. It's an emergency. Missions is not merely an opportunity. It's an emergency. You know what? People don't talk like this anymore. But we need to. We live in a world we live in a world that is full of unreached people. This means that there are groups in our, in our world, groups of people that there's not one known Christian amongst them. Right now it's believed that there's 4,000 unreached people groups in our world that have no access to the gospel. It's believed that right now 2.4 billion people in the world have never even once heard the name of Jesus. Not even in vain, 2.4 billion. You know, some of you guys might remember this, but back in 2015, there was a large terrorist attack that happened in Paris. It was all over the news, hashtag pray for Paris, right? Everywhere. That terrorist attack happened basically the same week that we told everyone God was calling us to Paris. That was the year that we moved to go to Paris. Friends and family stepped up and said, hey, Hey, don't go. It's too dangerous. Like, there's terrorists over there. People are dying in the streets. Do not go. Like, can you wait? It's not safe. Don't go. But here's the reality. In that terrorist attack in 2015 in Paris, 129 people were killed. And according to the stats that I shared with you earlier, there's a good chance that not a single one of them entered into eternity without... With, with access to the gospel, never once hearing the story of Jesus, they entered into eternity. And you know what? That's not okay with me. I'm not fine with that. It doesn't sit well with me that there are people around the world every day that die and never once have a chance to hear the saving message of who Jesus Christ is. It shouldn't sit well with any of us See, we need disciples. We need disciples that look at the nations around us without gospel access to the world and they say, not on my watch. We need churches ingrained in their communities that look at the people lost around them and say, not on my watch because lost people matter to God and he wants them found. I believe this reality breaks God's heart that there are still lost people in the world and it should break our hearts too. So I ask you today, does your heart break with the heart of God? Does your heart break for the lost? In conclusion, I'll say this. You know, a lot of us believe in Jesus. But let me ask you, do you believe Jesus? Because there's a difference. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Do you believe him? And if you do, then go after the lost. Seek out the lost. The encouraging thing is that we're part of something significant, lasting, and monumental. We're part of the kingdom of God. The news today around the world is full of our Christian brothers and sisters that are being killed for their faith. We as a church are under attack, but the wonderful promise is that gospel is unstoppable. In an increasingly dangerous time to be a follower of Christ in this world, there is, I believe, a stirring for such a time as this. For such a time as this, you were created. 
For such a time as this, you were called. For such a time as this, the spirit of the living God is moving and stirring and empowering us because lost people matter to God and he wants them found. This is not a human endeavor that we're undertaking. This is not a mission of Lansdowne Alliance Church. This is not a mission of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. This is the mission of God himself. And this mission is fueled by the Holy Spirit. So lastly, I want to ask you a question. And no, the question is not, is God calling you? (laughs) Because I believe that he already has. And I hope that you see from the scriptures today that he is calling every disciple in this room to go after the lost. God is calling you. God is calling me. God is calling us to reach lost people. So the better question for you today is this. How will you respond to the call? How will you respond to the call that God has placed on your life? Because he wants them found. Let me pray for us today. Jesus, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for what you're doing around the world. Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing here. And God, I can't help but think that you're speaking to someone today. Whether they're here in person or online, God, you are pulling on the heart of someone here this morning. God, I believe that you're calling us all to be goers. Maybe it doesn't mean that we go across the world. Maybe it does. But if it's not across the world, it's across the street. It's the people we interact with each and every day. Maybe people that we haven't paid enough attention to. God, you're calling us to go after them. So God, help us to live more missionally for you. And God, some people in this room, you're asking to be senders. Maybe for whatever reason, they're not able to go at this moment, but God, you are rising them up to be a sender, that they would support the goers in prayer and encouragement and giving. God, rise up your church in this community and around the world. God, thank you for who you are. Continue to speak to us through your word, even after this time together. Convict our hearts if that's what you want to do. Holy Spirit, stir in us a new work. In your name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.